Hello, and welcome to The Clinical Compass, Finding Our Direction. Here we discuss new evidence-based findings on the current topics in medicine. My name is Dr. Benjamin Senor, and I am joined here today by one of my senior faculty, Dr. Louis Kuritsky. Our discussion today touches on the USPSTF guidelines regarding primary prevention of aspirin, which was updated this year since 2016. This topic is relevant for all medical specialties since aspirin is one of the most widely used drugs and is listed as an essential medicine by the World Health Organization. Growing up, I used to see family members, friends, distant relatives, all taking baby aspirin regardless of their medical history. But that doesn't seem to be the case these days for primary prevention, right? Well, Ben, I think there's some sensible explanation for what you have observed. There's no debate about the benefits of aspirin when used for secondary prevention. And by secondary prevention, we mean anyone who is a known vasculopath, a person who's had an MI or stroke or has had a PCI. The literature is clear that antiplatelet therapy, and aspirin in particular, since that's our topic of discussion today, makes a major difference. There could be as much as a 30% reduction in mortality and 18 to 20% in future events like MI. And that, that of course, looked so enticing and, and so rewarding that I think it made some sense for us to have perhaps more faith in the potential value of primary prevention than we should have. So the new guidelines now say that anybody ages 40 to 59 um, who has not had a history of heart attack, stroke, bypass surgery, or any recent stent procedure, any procedure, and if they have an ASCVD risk greater than 10%, they should weigh out the risks and benefits with their primary care doctor to start aspirin, 81 milligrams or low dose aspirin. The recommendations also say that anyone over the age of 60 years old that has not had an event that I mentioned previously should not start baby aspirin. Well, there's a couple of critical points to what you've correctly stated, Ben. First off, we all have a lot of respect for the methodology and conclusions of the USPSTF. They have no particular bias to exert. For instance, pharmaceutical industry is not involved in any way with the USPSTF. They make their methodologies transparent. And interestingly enough, before they actually publish a final decree on what their opinions and recommendations are, they open up their opinions and recommendations to the public for comment. So that obviously there are many clinicians with important interest in aspirin and after all these opinions are aired and the evidence is reviewed, the USPSTF comes out with its final commentary. Now, the, the other important words that you used were to start, and we're going to come back to that in, in just a minute, but when the USPSTF gives a Category C recommendation, that basically means that if there are benefits, the benefits to be accrued are small, and so that before people begin a journey taking a new medicine when benefits are small, they need to know that, that there's not a grand benefit to be attained. Fortunately, 
The risks of aspirin are generally small, but that generally small refers to what happens in a large population. If it's your patient or your family member or your loved one who suffers a consequence from the aspirin, then suddenly that consequence looms very large. So I think the USPSTF was wise to couch their recommendation as a level C. The benefits to be accrued are small and one has to negotiate with the patient. So what would you say to primary care physicians, cardiologists, anybody, psychiatrists, anybody in the medical field that is in that position and want to sit down, a patient now wants to have start low-dose aspirin, their friend or best friend now started aspirin, how would you have that conversation, sit down with them at, at, at any level of a health provider and say, well, this is what the evidence shows and this is what I think the risks and benefits are, you know, increased risk of bleeding versus a net benefit for uh, decreasing the risk of cardiovascular mortality. So how would you start that conversation? Well, first of all, I think we owe it to patients to have the conversation. There are so many patients who are recognized vasculopaths or soon-to-be vasculopaths that we see a large population of people who need to share information with us. If it were a patient who came in tomorrow and said, I'm a middle-aged man and my wife, she had heard that aspirin could be a benefit, I would say, well, your wife was correct. Aspirin could be of benefit, but it can also be of risk. The public often does not pay attention to the scientific data on aspirin, and they tend to think that things that are over-the-counter are by nature the fact that they're over-the-counter essentially safe. You and I know that that is not the case. Certainly their safety profile is often excellent, but it is never zero risk. So patients need to be apprised of exactly what are the risks and what are the benefits. And it also depends on your, your background disease state. So that for instance, the diabetes population is probably the best one for which the risk benefit ratio is essentially identical, that the increase in bleeding risk that occurs with aspirin is exactly mirrored by the decrease in vascular risk. So that whether it was a 1% increase in bleeding and 1% decrease in myocardial infarction or 5% increase in bleeding and 5% decrease in myocardial infarction makes little difference. What we know is that they're fairly well balanced. Some of this has to do with your patient's personality and personal experience. Like I, for one, I really don't like taking medicine. The fact that I have to take a pill every day, no matter what the pill, even if it were only aspirin, it would still be a reminder to me, it would make me feel like, well, I'm not well. Now, other people, they take a different half class full perspective on that. They say, well, this aspirin that I'm taking every day might be preventing me from having a stroke or myocardial infarction. And they look at health benefit from swallowing that pill every day. You and I, as clinicians, can't immediately determine which side of the fence our patient is sitting on. So our, our responsibility is to present them with the annual risk of stroke or myocardial infarction they have and what the risk reduction would be with aspirin in their age group and what the risks are. Remember that people also analyze risks differently. I have certainly heard, despite articles in the literature that say, the risks and benefits in diabetics of taking aspirin for primary prevention essential cancel each, cancel each other out. Others say, well, I don't think you should look at it that way. 
you can't cancel out a stroke because you can't get your brain function back. You can't cancel out an MI because you can't get the myocardial tissue back. And on the other hand, with most of the people who have bleeding, the bleeding can be corrected or canceled out. So they don't feel like it's a fair scale to put side by side the gravity of having a serious bleed versus the gravity of avoiding a stroke or MI. And all these things play a, a role in the decision process. So we're going to have to figure out for any individual patient what their preferences are. And I want to do one last point about this. You are exactly correct to say that the issue we were talking about was starting aspirin. And we are generally speaking about low-dose aspirin because since low-dose aspirin appears to provide the same risk reduction as high-dose, but high-dose aspirin is always associated with more bleeding, it would be only appropriate to consistently use low-dose aspirin. In their guidance in the USPSTF document, they also include the idea that if your patient has been taking aspirin for a long time, that doesn't mean you should stop it in the age groups because the patient has been taking it for a long time and they haven't had a bleed. If they have, you might have stopped the aspirin because you'd say, well, perhaps this person isn't one who's going to enjoy the fruitful side of the risk-benefit relationship. So if they've been taking aspirin for a long time and have not had a serious bleed from it, as their age increases, the potential for risk reduction increases also but their bleeding risk doesn't seem to increase to the same degree. So it's a different conversation for people who have been taking the aspirin for a long time. And unfortunately, equally alarming is that it's been seen that in persons who cease taking antiplatelet therapies, there's actually a cluster of vascular thrombotic events in the 60 to 90 days after aspirin or clopidogrel cessation that's of some concern. If it was an easy and straightforward answer, Ben, I don't think we'd have to have this discussion. I'd say, here's the, what the answer is, here's what you go ahead and do. What I think it's wise is when we counsel patients on this issue, we have to advise them there is no risk-free path. Here's the risk of the path of taking the, stat, the, the aspirin, here's the risk of not taking it. And as close as those risks are, we have to advise them this is why the decision has to be individualized. As you said in the, law, in the last podcast, there is no such thing as a free lunch. There is no such thing as a free lunch, exactly. So in summary, Dr. Koritsky, the USPSTF made new recommendations saying ages 40 to 59 who have an ASCVD risk of 10% or greater with no cardiac history, that being history of heart attack, stroke, bypass surgery, any recent stent procedure, there might be a small benefit class C recommendation of starting a low-dose aspirin. Now, it is always beneficial to encourage to have that conversation with your patients discussing the risks and benefits of starting an aspirin. Join us next time on the Clinical Compass, Finding Our Direction. opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the views of UCF and HCA entities. The recommendations in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Please see your primary care physician for medical care regarding any advice heard in this podcast.
I would like to disclose that Dr. Louis Koritsky is or has been a consultant for Lilly, Behringer Ingelheim, Nova Nordisk, Sanofi, and Bayer.